You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my pleasure today to uh, introduce our fabulous guests. Uh, we have the founding team of Cool Iris here. And I want to introduce, starting on my left, with uh, Sujanya Boomkar, who is a, the CEO of the company. He has started several high-tech companies before, and the most notable of which was, uh, well, how can you, what did you? Well, Wazoo and Tamarin were, I would say, were pretty successful. Okay, great. So he started several companies. I'm sure we'll hear something about that. We have Austin Shoemaker, who graduated from Stanford in 2005. And uh, you're not going to believe it. Look at him. He doesn't look that old, but he also spent seven years at Apple. I think he was the youngest intern that was ever there, starting when he was 15. And in fact, I think he sold his first company when he was 13 years old. Uh, what's that? <laughs> there are other people involved. There are other people involved. It wasn't just you. Okay, well, we won't give you all the credit, but uh, it's pretty impressive anyway. And then we've got Josh Schwartzapel, who also was a Mayfield fellow, so I got to know him quite well over the last few years, and uh, he is also on the founding team, and uh, graduated from Stanford a year and a half ago, and was on the Stanford men's volleyball team. So we're going to hear all about this, and uh, let's get started. I have one confession to make. I am a huge fan of Cool Iris. I am such a fan of Cool Iris that whenever I go to a website that is not Cool Iris enabled, I get very upset. And I'm such a fan that these guys have actually made me Cool Iris evangelist cards that I give out to everybody. So uh, that's a little... Uh, full disclosure. Uh, full disclosure at the beginning. So um, you guys, this is kind of an interesting founding team. First of all, how did you guys all get to know each other? So Johnny, maybe you could tell us how this all sure, started. Sure, yeah. Actually, the company we started back in Jan of 06. Um, and this came up with an idea. Actually, other friend of mine had called with a very simple idea saying, if you mouse over a link, then you can see a page. A guy called Mayank. And uh, Josh and I had actually met in my previous startup, uh, where Josh used to come on some of the studies and giving us some advice and feedback. And he and I had stayed in touch. He looked like a very dynamic guy, very hungry, and wanted to conquer the world, and very well connected. So, so Josh and I, we were chatting about this, and what could we do potentially with this. So Josh says, I know a genius who has attended a class with me, and that genius is Austin. Uh, it says, well, why don't we all figure out? And so we started off with a very, very simple thing. And I think, you know, I, I, I fairly believe it, it's much easier to just sort of jump in as long as you know the a basic boundary. That's where, we ha that's where we knew. And then we got started. And then very soon, Josh was instrumental in getting us Kian, who uh, helped us on things. And then Ron Ye, another Stanford student, was doing his PhD back then. That's how the team was formed. I mean, we right. got started. Well, I, Austin, I know that you uh, are all hooked up to give us a little bit of a demo because I think a picture is definitely worth a thousand words when it comes to Cool Iris. So maybe you can uh, show us what you're doing. And for the people who are on the radio audience, maybe you can talk over to make sure that everyone knows exactly what you're showing us. Just for a quick market research, Tina, would you mind asking the audience oh, how many have yeah. seen Cool yeah. Iris? How many of you know about Cool Iris? Raise your hands. Oh, it looks like about 85%. Uh, raise your hands if you've never heard of Cool Iris. Okay, yeah, that's about 15%. How many of you have Cool Iris on your computer that have downloaded it? Okay, a lot. And how so many of you use it more than once? Who, you know, basically go back and count on it when you go to sites, especially when there's a lot of graphics? Okay, looks like about 45%. Okay. It's not, I think it's fallen over there. No, no, this is the one that's plugged in. I see. Are we having some technical difficulties? How many are from Cool Iris, by the way? 
How many people um, in the room are from Cool Iris? We've, yeah, did we pack the house with Cool Iris folks? Okay, we've got about, about, for those people who are listening, we've got about 20 people in the room who are from Cool Iris. Okay, so um, let's start out. Maybe you can uh, work behind the uh, scenes here to try to get the technology working. Okay, and if Austin uh, cannot get it. I don't think it is possible. It's not possible yeah. if Austin can't do it. All right. So I'm curious, what concept you started out with at the beginning, and what your what your mission was when you started. So the concept was, you know, as I said, the the first one was you mouse over a link and it shows you the page, but that's not the concept. The, that was just a, a feature, or, or most people would say, oh, that's a that's a good tool, utility, if you will. The idea there was, and this is a lot of credit to actually Austin to say, this is all about contextual navigation, which is while you are doing a search and you see the results, you do not have to lose the context. It's, the, it's, it's in the mind when you see a different page and then you lead down a different path, and that's not the path that you are trying to go towards. You are now basically helped by the tool to retain the context. So for instance, you do a search. This is our first product, which we now call as School Previews. Uh, which just actually this week reached a 5 million download count on Mozilla. Uh, the idea there was it solves a pain point that is universal. It's a very tiny pain point, but it, everybody in the world feels it. They feel it every single day, and it's related to contextual navigation. Great. So that's where we started off. And then that was three years ago, and today the theme remains the same, but the product and the team and technology has evolved significantly. Great. So um, maybe one of you can answer the question, at what point did you actually pitch this to someone and sort of feel like it was uh, far enough ahead that, that you could um, actually tell someone a little bit about, about what you were doing? Sure. So this was a, a very evolutionary process for us. It wasn't sort of a, you know, a one day we said, okay, you know, now we're there. And, you know, Sujanya has a lot of contacts um, in the Valley. And, uh, sure. Is the mic not working? Could you guys turn Hello? on the, the, the yeah, yeah, okay. Hello, is that better? Yeah. All right, great. Um, it was really, it's a progressive, pro a progressive process and a lot of credit to Sujanya for pushing us on this. It was all about going out and getting feedback repetitively. So we started out by meeting you know, different <laughs> potential partners. Um, we met with the CEO of Technorati. Uh, we met with you know, people at Yahoo. And it was really all about like, getting feedback. How do you see this fitting in with your business? How do you, feel, how do you see this you know, fitting in with your user base? Um, and, you know, at one point, you know, Sujanya had a contact at Kleiner Perkins named Ajit. Um, again, same kind of thing. We said we wanted to pitch our business model at, at the time, and we went in and got some feedback um, from him, and that, you know, got him excited. And then, you know, another partner at Kleiner Perkins, Randy, Co Randy Komisar, who many of you may know from E145, um, saw it, set up another, yet another feedback meeting, um, who Austin and I, you know, we had taken classes with. And then, um, he really sort of caught, you know, caught wind of the bigger vision and, and really sort of saw it. So again, it wasn't like a, you know, one day we've arrived. It was progressively going out and getting feedback from different people, and then you know, eventually it, it started to pick up traction. Did you actually have a product? Did you have something to show, or was just an idea at that stage? We did have a product. We did. Uh, I mean, basically, we had launched the first product. We had some data to show in terms of what the usability is, what people are using it for some stats to go along with it. Obviously, we had not raised a penny for a year and a half, so the cost side looked very favorable. Uh, it wasn't a, well, we incurred X amount of variable costs, and we had to buy 20,000 servers to do this. So, and then the business model, we had, you know, we had, a, we had great brainstorming sessions. So I think one of the main things 
that, that we had done along with a couple of other folks was continue and try and iterating on the early concept and says where all that can be done. And, and Austin is, is a big product visionary to say, for oh, this we can take it this way or we can go that way or we can take it the other way around. And uh, so it's really all about basically making sure that we had the right pieces together. We did not have every single, uh, I, I think I've never written a business plan myself. Like, I, I don't know if anybody writes business plan anymore. I think it's just a, a slide deck. And uh, the, what, what Josh is referring to is we basically used to keep on talking to the VCs and, and the investor community because we ourselves were investing our time. And I think time is just as big of an asset as capital is. And we would always like to run some cross-checks. So we never really pitched to say we were raising financing. But we would say we would love to get your feedback. And, 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 uh, and if it, obviously, if it was interesting for them, they would, they're going to say we would like to invest. I love that. The, I it, love this old saying, like, if you ask for uh, money, you get advice. If you ask for advice, you get money. <laughs> so uh, you basically went We didn't know that, by the way, that saying, but I think that's what it worked out. Great. So I know that you, I know that you ended up being uh, incubated then okay. at, uh, at KP, right? Kleiner Perkins incubated you. How involved were they through the process? I know that uh, Randy was passionate about what you're doing and still is. Um, did he have a desk there? How often did you see him? Did he come in and start coding? You know, Austin, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how Randy was involved. Sure. Uh, so Randy's been very involved since the beginning. Uh, we were in the incubator for almost a year, uh, and they were right next door to us across the bridge. And so. Uh, Randy and Trey, uh, both of whom have been working very closely with us uh, ever since uh, we started talking with them, uh, come over several times a week and would brainstorm with us, uh, see updates, bring in visitors uh, so we get to show off our stuff to dignitaries and, and other people who are visiting KP. And, Colin uh, Powell? Was yeah, Colin, Colin Powell was a, was a fan. Um, and they've been really instrumental in helping us to think about our product and how uh, it can evolve to become something much more than where it started, which was as a way to uh, discover and view pictures on the web. Uh, how do you take that and make it into something that people use every day as a part of their daily routine? So uh, it's been great to work with them, and they've been a huge part of it, but in a way where they work collaboratively and not kind of in your in It your wasn't business. the micromanagement. See, that's yeah. the beauty of it, I think, and Randy is a master at, I mean, he's a, he's a true guru to us, and not just the three of us, but the entire company can attest to that. He's been phenomenal in terms of just making sure that he gives us sort of a, a coach or a guidance, rather than saying this is exactly what you should do and, and following up on this is what you did or not. That wasn't the case at all. Okay. But I'm assuming that there were some metrics. I mean, they certainly didn't just give you money and space and say, just go run around, do whatever you want. What kind of metrics did they set out for you? And uh, were they metrics that were easier or challenging to reach? Well, we beat the, so the, I guess, taking a step back, the, the way the investment was made, it was a tranched investment, which is, you know, basically, I don't know if you guys know all tranched investment, but in effect, a particular piece is given to you, a million basically is what we had done on the tranche mechanism, and say you need to hit a, a couple of metrics there, and the metrics were active users. I mean, that's a very simple metrics in our, in our business. As simple as much as, let me just show you, we have it printed on the back side of a toothbrush that everybody, <laughs> all our, Tina, this one is for you, although maybe it was on the floor, did so you, it gave me a better yeah. one. <laughs> so, so, but the, the metrics are imprinted at the back, and it says, you know, weekly core metrics are active users, engagement time, and revenue per user. So, Who gets these toothbrushes? 
everybody in the company. So they basically, every morning when they brush their teeth, every night when they brush their teeth, <coughs> they know exactly what the metrics are. That's the point. <laughs> it, it doesn't show what the numbers are, but this is where actually Kevin, who is, I guess, associated with Mayfield through Elizabeth, he's, he's the engineering lead, and then Krishna over here, they've been making sure that we have the exact same metrics in as much real-time basis as we can. You could get tattoos on everyone as yeah. well. <laughs> and never go up, though. Uh, yeah, you're right. No, with the, yeah. with the So we, the expectation was for a year, that's is the amount of money that would last. We be, in, in eight months, we, re, we hit the metrics, and then we, we took on the, the second round. I'm also going to guess that as you've put your product out there, you've gotten a lot of really interesting responses from the market, right? How has the product changed in response to user feedback? So Austin probably can answer that best. Sure. Sure. So um, our first product was previews, which Sujanya described earlier. And the response to that was very positive, but it was also somewhat polarizing. Uh, we'd find that people would install it and either become very passionate users or uninstall it because it was one of those features that changes the way you use the web. Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, though, uh, we saw a lot of promise with that. And when we created PicLens, which was the photo-centric version of our contextual browsing uh, uh, concept, uh, we found that uh, people really enjoyed looking at photos in full screen and uh, experiencing things in a much richer, uh, less distracting way. And so between these two products, we started to focus on how we can take uh, PicLens, which became Coolirus, and make it into uh, something that can still integrate with the browser, but also not have any of the uh, distracting side effects uh, that our original product had at the time. Um, in no, go ahead. Not read done. Cool. And, um, yeah, and one lesson I would say, and this is something that we've been that we've learned, you know, tremendously over the last I would say six months. Um, there is no substitute for going out and actually watching your users use the product. Um, I would say this is, you know, at least on a personal level, this has been one of the things that's been the most illuminating to me. Um, for instance, you know, to give you a very concrete example of this, we have a search box in the top right-hand corner of our product, and we found, hey, you know, people aren't you know using this feature that much a while back, and we said, I wonder why this could be. It's so powerful. People are asking for it. And we actually found out that you know, of the people in our office, we have mostly these bright screen Macintoshes. And then when you go and you look at it on a low-end PC, you actually don't see the search box because it was a little bit dimmer. And you'd see it on a Mac. And there's all these things that you know, it, it's impossible to overcome the biases that you have when you're actually looking at your own product. And it's really cool when you actually go out and see people with fresh eyes take a look. There's, there's really no substitute for it. So that's, that's been sort of one very illuminating thing for us as far as product development. So if you are developing products, that's Absolutely do it. You know, do it every week. Go out and talk to users. Josh gets data out of those two, by the way. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> and uh, do you guys do A-B testing, you know, releasing several versions of the product at once and looking to see which ends up having uh, a bigger response? So we've started to do that with the, uh, with the website and uh, the welcome page that you see after you install. Uh, we measure the conversion to launching the product after that uh, and the frequency of launching one week later. And so we've used that to tune that page, uh, and we're starting to do that more in the client. Uh, it's harder to do it with software that people download. It's easier to modify a website to run an experiment. Uh, but we've started to incorporate experiments into the client itself uh, through communication with the server. So uh, definitely, we see it as one of the most important things that we do to improve the product on an ongoing basis. 
And, and another thing to add there too is, you know, and, and Sujanya, big time credit to Sujanya for this and for Krishna and to Kevin. Like a big transition for us has really been trying to, to move to be more of a data-driven company. And, you know, a lot of people talk about that and it's another thing to, you know, to, to set up the system and to or, ar- architect your organization in such a way that everybody's accountable to a number and to data. And, you know, Sujani has done a phenomenal job of everybody from, you know, engineers and product managers all the way down to interns where you have an accountable metric to actually look at and you can, and it's very, very measurable and easy to see, you know, your success as you go. So that's something that, you know, we've really focused on a lot and it, and it really does give you insight into how people are, and users are using your product. Great. So how many people are at the company now? So we, we are right now around 34 full-timers. Yeah, 34 uh, full-time. Full-time, who interns? we actually call as more than full-time. Yeah, and yeah. Austin and Kevin are all the time. <laughs> and th- then we have uh, another big gang of about 25 interns who we call as party teammates. Uh-huh. And I can see actually second row here, RJ and Richard and all these guys, all from the party team. So we've leveraged the student horsepower and we've blended the two in terms of experience plus innovation and raw energy and conditioned energy to really drive innovation and collaboration. Okay, so I know I got a chance to talk to you about this recruiting process that I think is brilliant. And I think you guys, how many students in the room have been touched by Cool Iris's recruiting efforts? Okay, just a handful of you. Okay, Not many. except okay. Well, listen, there's a huge opportunity here. <laughs> I have to tell you, I would like Josh to tell a little bit story here because what I when I met you, mm-hmm. you had just started Cool Iris, and one of the biggest challenges, of course, it was during a big, I guess maybe we'll call it another bubble, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the bubble echo, and it was really hard for you to to recruit people. You were pulling your hair out trying to figure out how do I get really really talented students to come to Cool Iris, and you ended up turning the assumptions upside down and doing some very creative things. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so there, there was really sort of two paths for recruiting. One was you know, c- recruiting full-time engineers and the other was recruiting you know, interns. Um, on the full-time side, what we really learned is you, know, you always hear it, you hear it everywhere. You know, people say, A players, hire A players, and you know, you've probably heard it at every ETL. And no one ever says, okay, well, how do you hire A players? And for us, it was we really we learned and, and from, we'd bring people in, we'd walk them in, we'd have them interview, and they'd inter- you know we'd interview and we'd say, hey, we have we're doing this great stuff, but we can't tell you, and it's going to be really awesome, and take our word for it. And everyone they go, okay, they'd go back and say, okay, well I have you know free food at Google, and you know all these unvested stock options, and my life's pretty good, and you know I'm, probably, I'm working on a big corporate job, so you know the, the extra 20 hours a week at the startup probably not a great thing. Um, and we found out that really, like, you know, the really, really great, amazing A-plus people out there in the world are people that already have great opportunities, right? They're, they're, very, they're very sought after. So we completely reversed the process. And what we started doing, you know, we'd walk people through. So we were in the Kleiner Perkins office. We'd walk them in through the front door of Kleiner Perkins, um, you know, walk them in, walk them past John Doerr and Bill Joy's office, you know, and Al Gore's office kind of casually. <laughs> um, you know, bring, bring them across the bridge, you know, get, make sure they stopped and got the fancy drinks in the refrigerator. And then we'd sit them down, and, and this is, you know, Sujanya saying, we'd say, you know, we're going to sell this person like they're John Doerr. And bring them in and say, you know, and really just kind of paint the picture for them. And it comes at a risk, right? You're giving away some information at the time, but it really is a way to, you know, like, if you're going to get the best people, you have to get them excited. Um, on the internship side, you know, credit goes to, to Sujanya for this program. It's really um, Matt Wall and Jonah exactly. turned the corner for us on that. Yeah, so we, I think what really helped us turn the corner was bringing in a couple of people. You know, how many of you guys have read Malcolm Gladwell? 
uh, tipping point. Tipping point, yeah. And that, you know, they talk a lot about connectors. And we brought in a couple of people, you know, specifically Matt Wall and, and Jonah Green, Greenberger, a couple of students from here, that were just a both highly respected in sort of the, the technical and engineering community, but also very very social. Um, and that's sort of a combination you don't find all, all that much, and really sort of allowing them to you know evangelize the company for you, and to move out and you know identify who the great people are and get them excited to come in. I also love the fact that once you started getting the parade of people coming in, you took them all. You kind of decided think, that, yeah. right, right? So, so how did you do that? What happened? Well, you know, so the, the, the product and engineering team had, the timing worked out great, I think. So the product was done around Jan 15th uh, time frame, and this is basically a year ago. And uh, Matt and Jonah would bring in people that they had met the night before, or I don't know where they were picking them up from. But uh, maybe we don't want to know all the. I don't want to know that. <laughs> but but everybody was amazing. I mean, they would really come in very passionate, very excited. Uh, we actually had one uh, person who we didn't actually accept, and then he wrote a very passionate letter, saying, you know, here's why I think. So we brought him in again, and we actually accepted him. Uh, it, it wasn't the case that we accepted everybody blindly. We did talk to every person. But the need of the company, I think, matched nicely with the, uh, the student energy and passion that was available at that point in time. And then we said, you know what, why not? And Randy was very supportive of that idea, we, him being a, a guru again. you know, He says, yeah, let's try it out. And, and it worked great. great. Well, I love the fact um, that it gave you an opportunity to kind of test drive all of these folks and see how uh, passionate and uh, motivated they were and what they actually delivered. Exactly. So obviously, uh, recruiting was a big challenge, and you figured out some interesting ways to get over those hurdles. What other big challenges? I mean, we know that starting a company is basically a collection of getting over a bunch of, of hurdles. What have been the big hurdles that have faced all of you that, that sort of are most memorable over the last couple of years? Uh, well, I guess the, the biggest challenges in my memory are building the products. Uh, starting out, it was a Mac-only, Safari-only browser extension, uh, and uh, getting that to work was pretty pretty challenging and fun. Uh, but the biggest challenge, I think, came when we wanted to go cross-platform. Uh, we wanted to be both Mac and Windows compatible and work on Firefox and on IE. Uh, and so we had to totally rewrite it, and I had to learn a whole bunch of Win32. Uh, and <laughs> And uh, creating something that works really well on one platform is so much easier than creating something that works across multiple platforms because you have to create these intermediate layers to abstract away the differences between each operating system and each browser. And so taking you know, what we had built from the user experience perspective and moving that into uh, being kind of a ubiquitous uh, uh, foundation that we could run on any computer on any browser uh, was probably the biggest challenge that, that you know, I've experienced so far with, with the team. Uh, but it's been really fun, and, and we did it. So, Josh. Um, I guess just sort of uh, abstracting that theme a little bit, it's, 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 execution is really the hard part, I, in, in my opinion. And you know, we, we talk about these things, OK, we want to be a data-driven company, and we want to make sure that everybody you know, starts their experience inside of Cool Iris on the internet. And there's these great ideas that are floating around, and it's really sort of taking taking these abstract ideas and turning them into either you know tangible organizational structure and processes, um, which Sujanya is you know his operational expertise, I mean, has really saved us and, and allowed us to do that, or taking these you know abstract and really awesome product ideas and building it in a way that's you know fast and performant and works, um, and that's better than the current internet, and that's you know that's where Austin's expertise comes in. So it's. 
it's really sort of taking these ideas and with very, very limited resources, converting them to actual action. And, and the hard part really is you always have to cut some, right? And I think that's the, the a real challenge there is just prioritization and saying, okay, there's these five amazing product ideas and we can only do one of them well. So we need to pick it and go for it. For me, it is finding the best people. That's always the hardest. No matter how much you grow and at what stage you are at, and the team that we have built, actually the bar is so high that the next one has to come and further raise the bar if that's even possible. Hardest thing to do, yeah. very, very hard. So you've got people, you've got sort of decision-making processes, you've got the technology, I mean, all of these are challenges. Um, and we would all guess that these are big challenges. What have been the biggest surprises that have happened? I'm gonna guess that things have happened that you sort of get up one morning and go, oh my God, I just didn't expect this. Uh, good, good surprises or bad surprises? Okay. Um, yeah, good surprises, bad surprises. Um, what happens on Friday nights? No. Um, I would say one of the biggest surprises, honestly, is when we started, I think you touched on this earlier, is, is again, sitting in front of users and actually watching them use your product and you know, kind of keep coming back to this theme. But you don't, it's so easy to not understand and not realize how little attention or how, how short the attention span is for consumers. Um, so, I don't know, for me that was the biggest surprise and, and how sort of, how much difficulty people will have doing things that you take to be simple and then only when you sort of find out and see it through their eyes that are actually you know, more and more complex. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say, you know, uh, from the technical side, uh, the biggest surprise was how bad OpenGL drivers were for, in open, for uh, <laughs> Intel integrated graphics. That was, that was pretty bad, actually. We released our Windows version, and then everyone was white screening. You know, they'd click, and then the screen would turn white. And so, you know, you start out, you have a small product, you know, a small user base, and, you know, you have a couple problems and you handle them. But when you have hundreds of thousands of people who are affected by a major problem, you're, you, you kind of wake up and say, oh, gosh, that's really bad. Uh, so, so that was that, and similar uh, events like that have been the biggest kinds of surprises where you realize that there's something wrong with the product um, and you need to fix it as soon as possible. Uh, and uh, we had one or two of those in the early days, and we've, uh, we've managed to avoid anything like that in the last uh, year and a half plus. But yeah, those are, those are big surprises. <laughs> For me, by the way, so we had a feature, which unfortunately I guess we have not been able to demo, but a, for those of you who know, there's a feature called Discover, which lets you basically navigate and find cool content and then navigate to that. And that was completely sort of, you know, it was conceived by Austin and the team, but it was completely executed by all the interns, only interns, for the first six months, purely interns. So we actually had Chris Anderson, I guess he's not here, but Chris Anderson was a freshman from Stanford, he came in and uh, you know, we handed off that responsibility on to him and very well executed in terms of what can be done uh, by just basic guidance and passionate energy. It was a surprise. We were thinking of it being, it works. Awesome. Oh, fabulous. Great, so it's perfect timing that perfect, we get a yeah. little sort of uh, break here in the discussion to get a demo, because I think for people in, who are in the room who've never seen it, I think they'll be surprised. My yeah. favorite thing is uh, the eCorner website that we run that has the video clips from this lecture series is Cool Iris enabled. Yeah. And so when people come into my office and I do a demo and I click the little button to open it up, I love it. Everybody goes, oh, 
This is amazing. So I'm hoping that you can give everyone in the audience that same experience. Um, I hope so, too. Uh, okay. With that uh, warm-up. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is Coolaris. It's uh, installed into Firefox. Uh, and the way I normally use Google Images, I'd do a search for Sunset. Uh, Uh-oh. I will... Uh, that is not Coolaris. This is not Coolaris. <laughs> Hang on. Sorry. For those listening, it just crashed. <laughs> Wow, awesome. You see how fast he codes? OK. <laughs> how about you okay, guys? OK, I'm going to keep, keep talking, talking while you work on this. Okay. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain there. OK, so um, we can see that Austin is in charge of dealing with all the technical issues. How do the rest of the responsibilities get divided up? And you guys were three founders. Three is often an interesting number. And uh, I'm wondering how well you guys do this. Are there uh, clear demarca demarcations about where one person's responsibilities begin and another end? Uh, has it something that's had to be negotiated? Give us a little clue how this has worked. You go first. Sure. See, that was one right. Yeah, right? <laughs> so I look to Sujani, and then he tells me. No, I'm just uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, in the in the early days when you're three people or four people in a, you know, in a garage or in our case a small office, um, it's kind of it really comes down to I think really two things. One is mutual respect. Um, how do you, you know, mutual and respecting each other and knowing each other what they're good at. Um, so that way and and things don't it's not like a, it's not someone says like okay you're going to do this and you're going to do this and i mean titles in a four person startup are meaningless it it really just kind of happens organically it's you know if you're, if you're talking if we're going to be doing something with um, partnerships or you know legal or financial stuff you know Sujani has a tremendous amount of experience and if it's a product or technology question it's you know it was obviously just going to default to Austin um, and i think it just comes from a mutual respect for one another to know each other's strengths and weaknesses and and you know defer to each other where it makes the most sense. Um, I'd say that's the biggest one. Yeah. Was that we, do you yeah, agree? I, I think so. We've never really sat down and say, oh, I think you are in charge of this, this, or this. And by the way, this actually extends just beyond even the founding team. We've we've never we've tried to create a way sort of a flat hierarchy, but where it's not a chaotic hippie movement, everybody <laughs> knows what's going on. You're fully empowered, but you're also fully accountable. And, and that's the model that has actually worked right from day one. And I think it, uh, to a fair extent, it sort of works even today in, in that sense. Uh, the, I would say, to sort of echo what Josh said, I think the key premise for you know, sort of compartmentalization of responsibilities is, comes from respect for each other and trust. If those two ingredients are there, then you automatically know that's the core competency an email comes in, and honestly, we don't even need to say, can you take this, can you take this? The person automatically knows, takes initiative, and bingo, gets done. Great. Um, there's clearly Whoops. examples of companies uh, where employees are empowered to spend some of their free time uh, experimenting with, uh, with new ideas on their own. Does that happen? Do you have people sort of doing Skunk Works projects, and they come to you, and it's sort of fully baked, and you go, wow, that's a surprise. I don't know if anybody has free time, <laughs> <laughs> but but there are skunk works project to a certain extent. We don't have a formalized like you know ten percent, twenty percent kind uh -huh. of a thing. Uh, in fact, why don't I let Austin show you? And then there's one feature that I'll call out what was done in free time. Perfect, okay. great, Austin. So now we uh, have it working. Take two. Okay. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Okay, good. <laughs> 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 okay, so. 
Uh, I do a search for sunset. Normally I get a grid of images. Uh, usually you're used to photos or uh, web page results being paginated. Uh, you click next, you see something you like, you have to click it and maybe click it again. Uh, you can see you know, you know, what you searched for, but then if it's not what you wanted, you have to use the back button and then continue. So we wanted to just make this really easy. So what we do is we mouse over an image and click this. And then uh, you can launch into the wall. And so the wall is basically this 3D uh, view of all of the results uh, from exactly the same uh, query that you entered on the website. So I can go down, uh, see uh, a photo that looks good to me, and click it. And then it loads the high-res version of it in place. So there's no need for me to navigate away from the context of my search. I can just bring up that particular result in place. Uh, so that's what it looks like on Google Images. I can also do a search on Flickr, let's say for uh, San Francisco, and bring up those results. And then, uh, I, as you can see, we're loading one page at a time as you scroll. So there's no need to think about next, previous, what page am I on, uh, etc. And uh, this, is, uh, this is where we started with images, but we also added support for video. So I can do a search for let's say surf on YouTube, and then watch uh, a video, whoops, and then watch the video in the wall. Um, and so, let me. Would you do me a favor? Can you go to the eCorner website? <laughs> Just because I think it, it's pretty cool. What's that? Okay, good. All right. Just click on videos, yeah. Up here. Just popular videos. So, yeah, here we go. got Randy right there. Yeah. I always tell people that what distinguishes Silicon Valley is not a We don't have to listen to the whole thing, but just cruise the wall for a second. I think it's sort of interesting just to see. So so the whole idea is that you don't get stuck anywhere, that you're always you know in a context, and you can move around within that context the way you would in a real environment. So... Once you see a video that looks interesting, you can take it into full screen. Kill the volume. And then uh, everything kind of disappears, and you can just experience the content. But if you want to go back, you can just return to the search context and keep on moving. And so uh, we've done, we did this originally with images, then added video, and now we support any kind of flash content. Uh, as Sujanya mentioned, we have a product called Discover, uh, which is an aggregation of content from around the web. Uh, and uh, we have featured channels for things like the presidential inauguration. We actually streamed the inauguration live through this channel. Uh, but you can go in here and you can watch content from Hulu or ABC or New York Times, BBC, uh, a whole bunch of premium entertainment, news, and sports content sources. Uh, so, for example, I could go into sports and watch uh, highlights from games that have been happening. Uh, and... I, one thing I guess you, you can notice is that the performance is unusually fast. We put a lot of energy into making it uh, basically zero latency if you have a reasonable internet connection. So as you're moving through, you don't wait for buffering, you don't wait for loading, you don't have to change pages, you just go directly to the content and consume the content. Uh, we also have uh, a shopping feature, which uh, Josh is actually uh, proactively championing right now and, and making better uh, all the time. Uh, so I can do a search in here, let's say for an iPod, 
And then we automatically pick the right category and let you browse through the wall to find what you're looking for. So let's say that I want uh, a nano. I can select it here. I read information about it. And then I can jump out to Amazon's website to actually purchase the product or read more information. OK, so on this note, what is your business model? I mean, it's free for all of us to download this. I use it all the time. I don't pay a penny, right? What's yeah. just like the rest of the web? How do you support this? Uh, so I think it's a good segue into continuing the demos. Sure. So I'll just keep keep demoing this. So as you're as you're going down the wall, um, the mouse stopped working. Okay. Well, anyway. As you're going down the wall, um, you see advertisements uh, that are just part of the content. And so you know, the difference between this and a web page is that in a web page, you have the content which takes the main focus, and then ad banners or, uh, um, or I guess, skyscrapers uh, on the periphery of the page competing for your attention. And in our environment, you're moving from content to content, and occasionally you'll cross over something which is an ad. And Ads themselves can be compelling content. And uh, I'll let you talk a bit about the statistics that we found. Sure. I guess in our particular interface, what we find is we see at least a 10x or a 20x greater click-through rates on ads. And in fact, Hong is the product manager for inline ads there. He has a lot more data, which has been able to, to sell to the advertising agencies and advertisers as to why this is a good substrate or a good media to show and display ads. It's, it's currently priced based on performance, so there's a no risk to the ad agencies, and especially in the down economy where everybody wants an ROI on the, on the money that they're spending or they would like to put it in, allocate from a magazine onto the internet, uh, it, it provides a great substitute to really say, your, your ad dollars are going to be spent on users who spend you know, roughly the equivalent of a television show every week. And the millions of users that we have do spend a lot of time watching the ads, and that's how we make money. The second revenue stream comes from shopping, where when Austin demoed, when you land from, basically you navigate and then you decide this is a product that you would like to buy, then we get an affiliate fee from the e-commerce merchants. Great. So you sell ads directly for the wall. That's correct, yeah. Okay, and then you get an affiliate fee for sales. For the shopping. Shopping. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So I could not call out because I guess this build doesn't have local, but I was going to say local was a feature that Kevin built in his you know, part-time from 2 a.m. till 3 a.m., uh -huh. uh, the spare time he had. And then we actually have that feature going in our next release. We can, we can navigate local content. OK, so I'm going to ask one more question. Then I'm going to open it up to the audience. So I'd love for you to start thinking about questions that you might have for these guys. Uh, you keep referring to the fact that people are there around the clock. Uh, okay. Not there, but they are working. They're working <coughs> or are engaged uh, you know, a yeah. good part of the day. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the culture of the company? Because you, clearly you've got a lot of really young, energetic folks. People are working really hard. What, tell us a little bit more about the culture. So can I try something? And this is a surprise, but can I get actually one of them to mention what the culture is rather than us saying what the culture is? Can I maybe let sure, Kevin say? Sure, sure. Yeah? Well, I've got a microphone too. Kevin, why don't you okay. say what the culture is? Here. Yeah. Here. Pass the microphone to Kevin. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, but I, okay, I think it's Kevin. better. <laughs> Kevin Wow. okay. Um, I would say the biggest thing about our culture is that it's, it's completely collaborative. Um, we, as I mentioned, we don't, there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of hierarchy. We all work as a team. And um, people's responsibilities, I think, span different teams. You know, so I'll I'll do um, I work on different I work across uh, sometimes on the server side, sometimes I work on the product that you just saw. 
Um, Austin does product stuff. Uh, Josh does multiple product stuff. Josh does recruiting. Sujani does everything. Well, um, <laughs> or nothing. Um, so I think I think the common thing that that I've noticed. I you know I'm young. I haven't had that many jobs, but everyone enjoys coming into work, and that has been that was markedly different than uh, the places I've worked before. I, I, we have a great rapport. You know that we. If you go to the office, we're divided. The, the bottom floor is uh, the, the second floor is engineering, and the bottom floor is pretty much everything else. And uh, you, at three o'clock every day, it, the place just explodes, and uh, you hear you hear people yelling and screaming for no reason. And it just gets it gets very loud. And upstairs, <laughs> I guess. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you have a Scaring people away. Now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think everyone enjoys coming to the office. We get along really well. The second floor, we laugh a lot. We work really hard, but we have a great time together. Uh, and so it doesn't feel like work. I think that's the bottom line. I think the, the, the truth is it's a, it's a passionate team, and it's not passionate team performing not under pressure, but it's really because we are all driven to the same cause. Very ambitious. We all know this is what we want to get and everybody's having fun. I think that what you just did there was reflective of how you run the company, right? Is that you invite everybody into the process, even you know, whatever role they are. So it's someone in the audience can get up and uh, share their insight. So I love that because you just demonstrated the culture of the company. So let me, uh, let me open it up to questions. Yeah, over here. And uh, I'm gonna ask our panelists to repeat the question. Okay, um, I was just wondering about, you know, you guys are using sort of other people's images. Um, sort of feed your service and then you get advertising revenue from that. I was wondering how sort of the suppliers of those images when you're you know, downloading the high resolution versions of them but not showing their advertising, there's sort of a conflict there between the, you and them. We should actually, can you pull up the demo if you don't mind? Uh, Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that we, we only monetize currently within Discover, uh, which is a destination which we bring users to. And so users who um, come to that content actually end up linking out to the content owner's website. So uh, we, we aren't actually monetizing on top of uh, a page view which somebody has already acquired. We're generating page views for those content owners. Uh, and in terms of the relationship with uh, those containers, uh, I'll let Sujanya talk a bit about how we manage that. So the deal basically is publishers and content providers want to serve their content into the interface because we drive traffic to their site. We don't charge them for that, so it's a new user acquisition for them. And they get to monetize the content. If it's a video, they can do a pre-roll, post-roll, whatever, and then they keep those revenues. So they actually not only get new users coming in there, if on the content syndication strategy side, they are actually able to monetize those users, which are our users, in fact. So it's the, it's the opposite. It's not we are taking their content and putting our ads and making money. That's not what we do, because that would happen if we were doing in search. Under Discover, it's the content that they have provided us feeds with. So we either drive content to their site, or we make them money. So, so it, that's a good deal. Yeah, I mean, but just for the image thing, it seems like, you know, like Google, there was some controversy where they were thumbnailing all the images and it was eating, you know, some minuscule amount of bandwidth. So we don't monetize that. Yeah, okay. okay. But, I mean, you're still using their bandwidth. I mean, I, maybe some people might object. I don't know. Yeah. So the, the link outs happen, which is what drives new users to their site. I think that's a, that's a positive there. And then on the page view side, they do get a credit for the page views. That's the other significant part of that.
Did you want to show something here? Uh, I was just showing uh, link outs and embedded advertising in video. Okay. Great. Do we have another question? Yes. Can you repeat that? No, 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 I want that. So if, if, I, if I understand what, what you're saying, Hulu is already inserting ads, and so for us to insert additional ads on top of that, we're further compounding the user annoyance. Uh, so I think, I think that there's some degree of truth to that, but there's also uh, kind of two user modes. One is surfing around trying to find something to watch, and the other is actually consuming the content. So Hulu can insert the ads while you're watching the episode, and you're not going to walk away because you know, you're watching the episode. Um, and when you're moving from content to content, that's uh, kind of a different time. So uh, I guess we're not showing ads while the video is playing. It's, they're mutually exclusive. So uh, Hulu is doing interstitial video ads or mid-roll ads, and we're doing uh, intra-content ads. Uh, a great metaphor to think about is Google search, right? So like on the Google search page, you have you know, snippets of the content and then Google's ads. And as soon as you click out, as soon as you go to engage with that content, then that monetization is owned by the content owner. Same model. Another question? Yeah. Um, how do you give interns projects that are self-contained in the short time that they're there? And like, how do you get them to interact with projects that are real-time or short So we are very familiar with the effect that you call as Cabo effect which is all of all the interns go away at the same time. They're all partying and uh, I guess I don't know what they're doing, but we see their <laughs> photos on Facebook. Uh, but we, it does have that. You have to create projects that we know will undergo a lack of uh, attention during those periods of time. Uh, some projects are scopable, I think, uh, and that's... The, the projects have also changed from, you know, from like a year ago when sort of more discovery-oriented to... Katie, who heads recruiting now, you know, which of course works very well with the, with the recruiting season here. So you do have to select projects that will work well with the intern model. So I don't think every single project works with the intern model. So for example, there are some interns who work with the engineering team directly, uh, but those interns have been with us for a very long time and have uh, become a part of the core team in many respects. So. Yeah. I was wondering if you could comment on sort of the changes that the uh, revenue officer brought and how it's changed your outlook uh, Sure. So Will the question ahead? is, uh, how has the outlook of the company changed and what has it been the contribution of the chief revenue officer? So the moment we hit uh, our one million active user account, which is when we got the tranche, uh, the first thing we said is you know, we were going to hire in somebody who's done this before. And so Shashi Set, who is the chief revenue officer for us, he had been the head of monetization for YouTube, uh, you know, and he knew Randy well, so it was sort of an easier conversation to get going. Uh, he joined us. He's done phenomenally well. They have a, a now a revenue team, of which Hong, who is the product manager, is sitting behind, and then Josh, who is on the shopping side. So he was able to come in and firstly bring in the focus. He put together the team that was needed for each of the revenue models that, that we were pursuing and then set up a framework of experimentation by working with the engineering team and said, even if we don't start driving revenues today, we need to know where the faucet in the room is, and then we can turn the faucet on whenever we want. 
So let's just first figure out just as much of innovation that we have created on the product side, let's just do also the same thing on the monetization side. And, and to be very honest, even today we are partly in that mode. We are driving revenues today, which is, which is a good thing in this economy. But we are also experimenting simultaneously on, on multiple aspects of what can be monetized, what cannot be, all of this while making sure that the users are happy. Okay, that's fundamental value for us as a company. The one situation we didn't want to get into was the situation where you, know, you kind of hear, oh, we're going to just build this huge user base, and then we're going to figure out how to monetize it later. And I think that was sort of a you know, recurring theme that you saw on Web 2.0. And you're seeing it with the social networks, how difficult it is to actually monetize a lot of that traffic. Um, in fact, if you look at the model almost everywhere else, it's the opposite. They say, you know what, we're going to figure out how to get our revenue per customer very high. And then at that point, you have a lot of control, right? Because then you can buy distribution, you can do other things like that. So we're more focused on experimenting and really tweaking and iterating to find out how do we get our revenue per customer number high and then going out and, you know, and simultaneously solving the distribution problem. But it makes it a lot easier to solve. I love the concept, and I've heard you mention this before, of uh, basically building it with the faucets in the room. You're not sure exactly when you're going to turn them on, but you certainly know where they're there. And I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind for anyone who's starting an e-commerce company. You might not at the beginning want to figure out how, what your revenue stream is, but you need to know what you're going to do in the future. And simultaneously, we keep an eye on the cost side as well, right from day one. Not like we say, oh, let's grow the user base, then we'll worry about how the cost structure looks like. Because right. then you're going to scale the business right. and then be stuck with this issue of, oh, how can I now take down my variable costs? Great. So essentially, you're putting in a really sturdy foundation at the beginning, knowing that you can build on it. Super. Yep, there's a question right there. Who are your biggest current or potential competitors, and how are you guys staying ahead of them? So, um, I guess uh, this is an interesting question. Um, as, a browser, as a 3D browser extension for viewing rich media content, uh, we don't really have any direct competitors. Uh, there, are, there are people who are uh, cloning parts of our user experience, uh, which we see as potentially competitive. Uh, and there are other uh, client applications, which are sort of web-centric, uh, which can enable, uh, uh, I guess, content discovery or, or content um, uh, sharing experiences. But really, I think our biggest competitor is, uh, is more about time in the day. So we're competing for users' uh, attention. So the time that they spend in the traditional web on their browser is really what we're competing for. And so we're competing for that, uh, I guess, with the traditional paradigm of, of web navigation. I, I, yeah, so I think one thing to add to that is when you're thinking about competition in a business, it's not, you're not thinking necessarily about who's building the same product. You're thinking about who's solving the same user need, right? So like the iPod's competition not, wasn't necessarily you know, another digital or another MP3 player, it was really the Discman and you know, the, the Walkman by Sony. Um, you know, tons, of, tons of other examples. It, it really, that, for instance, like the PDA. Their competition now is the cell phone, even though, it's, even, even though there's you know, tons of PDA companies out there. So it's, you really want to think about, from a competition perspective, who's meeting the needs of your customers, not who's building the same product. So you I'm up level it sli slightly a little bit too. You you have technology <laughs> competitors, you have business competitors, you also have competitors for competing for the same talent. So I think you need to break down. You just just as you segment your market for customers, you need to segment your market for competition. So, so with on that note, 
you must be looking into the future saying, what are you going to do next? I mean, what's your next surprise for us? What are, what are we going to see Cool Iris doing you know, after everybody's using this? What new features, what new aspects are, can we look forward to? <laughs> so in uh, our next release, we're going to be extending the amount of metadata that you can see around content. We're going to be extending uh, support for sites uh, that you can browse on the web. Uh, we can't really discuss exactly what we're, we're doing, but in general, our goal is to make the product be much more widely useful uh, as you interact with the internet and uh, also make it uh, more integrated to the fabric of your everyday life. And so we're going to be adding capabilities to the software and, and evolving it in a direction that I think will uh, be very compelling uh, for anyone who likes the internet. Did you want to say something? A Tina Selig channel on Discover. Don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's top secret. So secret, no one will know. OK, question. So first, um, you guys have one of the sickest UIs I've seen in a long time, so I just want to commend you and the team on, on the Facebook. Austin and the team takes most of the character. Um, so I want to ask you a question, which you said you have about 34 full-time people, 20-odd interns. That's a high, high burn rate. So I'm guessing you've kind of already run through your first round. And so what's it been like to go out and do fundraising in well, the second round? Sure. So, um, it, so last year, just for comparables, we were 10 full-time, and we had 40 interns, 4-0. <laughs> and so we really leveraged the, the, the student horsepower. And it wasn't done for cost reasons, but it did end up becoming a cost-effective business. Uh, so where we are is we did close another round uh, recently. And uh, cost is something, you know, just because we are 34 people, we, uh, not everybody draws full salary. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we have a high burn rate. We actually do a fairly decent job. And uh, of making sure that our just overall cost and cost not just from a cost expense perspective, but cost from a productivity perspective, and and those two can be two different things. And when you sort of prove those out to the investor in terms of what you have been able to do, so first year and a half of the company we had zero money, so we couldn't run out of any money. Then we had uh, <laughs> then we had you know then we raised three out of that. The first million was a tranche. So I think we've been able to show that we can execute within the confines of what we have. And I think we, got, we actually got credit for, for doing that. And one big advantage of uh, running the company for, for about a year before we had any money was that the product plan and the whole idea was based around the idea that you could build this and deliver value without running giant clusters of servers. Okay. I think I'm going to quote you on that. If you don't have any money, you can't run out of it. <laughs> <laughs> great, great line. OK, another question, yeah. So please repeat the question. Sure. Hong, you, sh you should answer this question. Can you repeat the question? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so well, why, don't, why don't you just answer it? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the question is, compared to a Google AdSense ad click-through rates, how good are our click-through rates? Can you stand up and speak loudly? <laughs> so the most direct comparison you can think of are click-to-play video ads, where you know there's a video thumbnail, and you click an ad, like a Gatorade ad, on a website, and it plays. Um, traditionally, those have been around 0.3 to 0.5%. So 0 0.3 to 0.5% of all the thumbnails you see get clicked. What we're seeing in the wall is that a high-engagement ad like that gets anywhere from um, 3 to 6%. So like Sujaina said, um, something higher than 10x of what you see on the web. So that's really good ROI for any of the advertisers are, that are out there. 
And in addition to uh, just getting the selection information to the advertisers, we also tell them how much time a user mouses over a, a thumbnail, how much time they spend looking at that uh, video, how much time uh, they look at content around it, and a huge slew, a long list of uh, uh, metrics that we can give them that they can't get online. So it helps them optimize their campaigns, it helps them figure out what ads are better, uh, and what, which of these um, different channels. So not only do you get better engagement, you also get much more value added through Polaris. And our advertisers love it. So. Great. Okay. Is there one last question from the room? Any last question? Great. Back there. Um, you talked about the importance of testing with the public. So I was just wondering how you go out and find the people. Do you have targeted groups or a developed or a established base of testers? Or are you talking with random people? So please repeat it. So the question was around how do you select when you when you do get your product in front of users? How do you select you know the right user, um, the right users to test? And you're absolutely right. The, the the correct approach is not to just spray lists and say you know come one come all and you know come try out Coolrs. Um, there's really a couple of ways that we do this. One actually we have a you know a very uh, avid user what we call you know user user growth team um, who are always in constant touch with an email communication with our users. So sometimes we'll pull from there, you know, to get insight from them and say, you know, hey, what do you like? What do you, what do you don't like? What's confusing for you? Um, the other way that we do it um, is really around you're trying to get a specific question answered um, without getting into too much detail. It's, for instance, like if we're if we're talking about you know looking at photos on your on your local machine, you want to go out and find okay people that have at least two cameras and um, have, uh, upload pictures to to a website and take take pictures at least once a quarter. So you really kind of want to look and say, okay, who's the target for this? And then go out and find and talk to those people. And they're usually pretty vocal and will tell you a lot. Great. Well, I want to thank our panelists. I think this is incredibly impressive. I imagine that many of you are now brand new Cool Iris evangelists, just like me. And uh, thank, thank you, you so much for coming. Thank you so much for this. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.